0: Do you want the courage to lead? Do you want the courage to be yourself truly and wholly without fear? Do you want to try new things? Do you want to move across the nation? Do you want to move overseas? Do you want to explore the world? Do you want to explore yourself? There's so much to be said for living a courageous life. And today's guest shows exactly how to do that. And you'll absolutely love her energy. She is remarkable. If you want to ask a question or leave a comment for our guest, I'll tell you who she is in just a moment. You can do that on our Facebook page, our new podcast Facebook page. The link is right there in the show notes as you look at where you're listening to your episode. Just look at your player there. The link's right there. You can click on through and leave a comment or ask a question. Now on to the guest. Who is this remarkable person? Her name is Margie Worrell. She has just published her fifth book that she's single authored called You've Got This, The Life-Changing Power of Trusting Yourself. Uh, She's also a co-author of two other books. Her background is amazing. She's an Aussie. She draws on her background in Fortune 500 business, coaching, and psychology. She declares her mission is about emboldening people to lead themselves and others to better outcomes. And this is her definition of leadership for sure. She has lived on multiple continents around the world, currently residing in Singapore, which is amazing. She is a sought after speaker and expert with organizations like Salesforce, British Telecom, NASA, holy cow, Morgan Stanley, UN Foundation, Johnson & Johnson, L'Oreal, Microsoft, SAP, and Delight. Holy cow, we've got a heavy hitter. She is a remarkable woman. Love her to death. Please welcome Margie Worrell. Awesome. Straight from Singapore. How wonderful. You've just come out of a long swim and have joined us on the podcast. It's so exciting to have you here, Margie.
1: Uh, It is so great to finally be connecting with you on your podcast, Zoe.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I love this medium. It's so good. So my first question for you is around leadership. So my listeners are steeped in leadership and are looking to grow and hone their leadership skills particularly when it comes to people stuff and you're a master there this is your fourth book isn't it you've got this is is your fourth book or your fifth book or your seventh it's book actually, it's, <laughs> it's actually
1: my it's my fifth one that i've written i've co-authored two others but it's my fifth book yeah
0: oh fantastic Um, So I might talk about book writing because I'm immersed in my own book writing at the moment. But my leadership question, let's get into that, is how do you define leadership and how did you know you could actually do it? Or when did you know you could actually do it?
1: Uh, Look, my, my, my definition of leadership is fairly broad in many ways. It is the decision we make to affect positive change. My favorite quote on it that encapsulates it, the most is by John Quincy Adams, who is one of the, I think the fifth president of the United States. And he said, if your actions inspire others to learn more, to do more, to dream more, or to become more, you are a leader. And so it is not about position, it is not about status, it is not about formal authority and power. I have never been in a big, high-ranking leadership role in, in an organisation myself, but I absolutely see myself as a leader. And I guess it's why I have such a passion to embolden in other people to see themselves as leaders and own their power to affect change, because I think it's so important in today's workplace and, and world.
0: I agree with that. And... I think it's interesting how encouraging people to believe and see themselves as leaders is is often a first step. Because if you ask people, are you a leader? They're like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Unless they have like a formal title, they don't feel compelled to align themselves with that word. And so a lot of your work is about doing that. It's about people to, like, to, to be brave, to stand up, to stand out. You've got this is your latest book title. And uh, that self-leadership piece, backing yourself, is essential. If you're going to do any of those things that you just listed in your quote, you know, inspire others, help them to learn. Yeah. But I also think it takes into account not everybody
1: is a natural fit to be someone who is in a top leadership role. I mean, we all do have different personalities. We have different strengths. So I think it's thinking more broadly about leadership. You know, some people go, oh, I couldn't think of anything worse than, you know, running an organization with a thousand people in it. I'm like, that's okay. If you couldn't think of anything worse, then that's not for you. (laughs) But that doesn't mean you don't have the ability to still be a leader in your own right and in your own way. And I think that's where our idea of, if our idea of a leader is someone who is sort of very charismatic and very strategic and, and visionary and all that. Well, sure, that's going to limit the pool of people we think of who can show leadership. But that's where I I think it's important to be careful of how we define it in ways that don't limit our ability to add value and to contribute and to use our strengths in ways that have a positive impact for other people.
0: So when was it that you decided or you realized that you could be and were a leader uh, given that definition, you know, which is about leading yourself and have the courage to follow your convictions. Well, well,
1: probably a, it's unfortunately decades after I wished I had seen that. I mean, I, I probably <laughs> knew I could be. I mean, back when I was at university, I was sort of the president of the the business that I was uh, did a business degree, and I became president of the student association when I was what twenty years old or something. And I suppose at that point, you know, I was already stepping up and taking on leadership roles. But, and this is where actually sometimes the gendered manifestations can impact how we see ourselves too. I grew up on a small dairy farm in rural Victoria, Australia, in East Gippsland. I never, con- I mean, I had zero role models of people even in, frankly, the professional world. My father milked cows for 50 years. And so for me as, as a woman, I didn't see myself as someone who had the potential to be a power broker, a leader in a, in a, in a bigger organizational context. And I think I sold myself short, to be quite honest with you. And it was probably really in my, well in my 30s and 40s that I think I've really stepped up to be a leader in my own way. You know, and obviously the work that I do, which is actually working and emboldening other people to be leaders. So, yeah, I, if anything, I, I look back now and wished I had seen myself as a leader far earlier on in my career. And I think it, it may have, I may, who knows what I'd be doing. I mean, there's no point kind of speculating on it all but I to me it's been an evolving recognition of yeah I'm a leader I don't have to be running a company and I haven't stayed in the corporate career track that I still and I and it's why I feel so passionately about emboldening other people and frankly women when I I do a lot of work obviously across the board in organizations and sometimes in very male-dominated fields but when I ask an audience who sees themselves as a leader and when there's a lot of women in the audience, women can be more reticent to put their hand up than men. And I think that's where the gender, the social norms that we have can sometimes hold women back from seeing themselves as leaders as fully and as early as men can.
0: I think that's an interesting paradigm, um, the whole male-female dichotomy. And you've got a section in your latest book, You've Got This, where we talk about that, or where you talk about it, and how there's different callings or calling outs or encouraging ups, for men and women and for men you talk about the need to be vulnerable and for women it's about the need to be courageous did i encapsulate that correctly
1: uh yes i think both we all need to be courageous Um, but how but what that looks like and what that means for us can be different and so for women i believe women we need to make more of a bet on ourselves to back ourselves more to take a risk to put ourselves out there and and whereas for men often there's, I mean, there's so many just the social norms, but men often struggle to be able to say I'm struggling or I need help or to show weakness. And so vulnerability is, is more of an issue. I, I believe from men often because so often, you know, where they're raised to be, you'd have to be strong, you have to be certain, you have to be, you know, invulnerable. And so I think in terms of our ability to connect with other people in really authentic ways, it's important for men to be able to reveal, you know, what they're dealing with. I mean, not with everybody, vulnerability that's just doesn't have parameters on it isn't, isn't good leadership, but to be able to connect with other people and lower that, lower the sometimes the I've got it all together and lower the armory that we can use to kind of protect ourselves and and prove ourselves to others.
0: I think the social context is keeping both men and women from achieving both those things. So I think my reading of it is that the, and you allude to this a little bit in your book too, is that the social permissions for men to lower their guard and be vulnerable aren't there. Like the expectation is so great that there's other risks associated for men to to be vulnerable. And for women, there's social risks for stepping up and being courageous and putting themselves forward. And it's a social construct that is quite complex. And what do you think we need to dismantle first? Does it start from the individual being courageous to buck the norms, or is there something else that we need to do? Uh, to change the social expectations?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's such a great question and it's such a, a big topic. And I don't believe we can change the norms by bending to them. But I absolutely agree with you that there's a backlash that male or female we face when we violate the roles that we're supposed to have and we act in ways that aren't conforming to our gender roles and there's a theory called social role uh congruity theory when we're not acting congruent with our role we can get backlash and men can get it just as well as women and i read a great study that men who display sadness and emotion are seen to be less deserving of that emotion than women are <laughs> um, and that could be how it can be saved you know when when men can be upset, it can seem to be less leader-like, whereas women, oh, yeah, women get emotional. So I absolutely know that there is backlash. And that's where I think it's really important. How How do we change these social constructs if all we do is fit in with the social constructs? And that's where I think, you know, these things take a lot of time and dismantling You know, this isn't something that just happens in the space of a few years and talking about toxic masculinity or the need for women to lean in and step up, etc., It takes a long time, but I think all of us have a role to play in that. And those who are in leadership roles, while there's a balance to be, we've got to strike that balance, I think it's important for them to also be role modelling all of the aspects of what it is to be human. And it doesn't mean that, you know, just because I'm, we may be dealing with something that's that's causing us to struggle in some way doesn't mean we still aren't strong. I actually think we access our deepest strength when we're willing to stand in a place of vulnerability. Um, but, of course, it is context-dependent. And, you know, if you're leading a team through something, they're looking to you to show certainty that we're going to get through this, which, of course, right now, Zoe, in the midst of all of the anxiety around coronavirus, but more so the disruption of coronavirus I think we're looking to leaders to say hey are we going to get you know are we going to get through this because leaders are emotional barometers and people look to them for cues of how should I be responding tell me it's going to be okay and so I think there's also an important role leaders have to fill there in showing showing self-certainty and I think you know being grounded in a a deep deep belief that we are going to get through this we'll come out the other side of this even though we're not exactly sure what the path ahead is going to hold.
0: Mm, I like that self-certainty notion. And I think you might have quoted this or not uh, as an image that the bird isn't worried about sitting on a twig, but trusts her wing to fly. And I think that's um, the notion of self-certainty doesn't matter where you're sitting, whether you're in the middle of a coronavirus chaos or not, that sense of self-certainty that you've got the confidence that you've got this is the main principle here. And when we can back ourselves that way, then we can face whatever challenge.
1: Yeah, and it's honestly it's why I wrote. You've got this. I've dealt with a lot of disruption and uncertainty in the last few years on the personal front. Um, My husband works for a large organization. He got moved internationally, very short notice, massively disruptive to our family, and we've been just figuring it out as best we can as we've gone along. And and I've had to really look within myself to go, okay, I've got this. You know, our family will figure this out. How do we how do we navigate the challenges and all the changes that this has brought into our lives and so it's the same right now and that idea that I I did I include that in the book about how do we trust ourselves that even if the branch beneath us is is feeling awfully shaky that whatever happens even if if the branch breaks we're not going to fall to our death we'll be okay and trusting in our innate capacity to deal with the challenges that are coming at us. And I know it's really easy in times where there is massive uncertainty to get anxious. I mean, we're wired for certainty. We want to have certainty. And I think that's where the more secure a leader is in themselves, the better they will be able to lead and influence and inspire and guide others. And at times when there is a lot of uncertainty, we have to really double down on what allows us to be more certain in ourselves. And I've had a lot of experience through insecure leaders who are not secure in themselves and insecure leaders can absolutely um, really undermine the potential of people who are working for them because they're playing it safe, they're protecting themselves, they're highly sensitive to anything that could threaten their reputation. And it actually just creates this cultural environment in their teams and organisations where everyone's too scared to speak up, step up, say anything, push back, try something new. And it totally undermines the outcomes that their team organisation is able to create.
0: I love that. Yeah. And we, I think we underestimate how much the ripple effect of the leader can create in an organization. In fact, Cindy Wigglesworth says that the capacity of the organization is limited by the capacity of the leader. And it all starts with that self-leadership and that self-backing principle. So along with that, like, I guess the question people want to know is like, how do you learn how to do that? And your whole, all your work is, is around how you can learn to back yourself and develop confidence. I'm curious about this though. Can you build a capacity for confidence and courage, like building a reservoir tank or different analogy? Is it more a habit and a practice? Like, like the more you practice being courageous, the more do you have, or do you have to show up every day and practice it? Both. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I I absolutely believe we have to be very intentional, day in, day out, at looking at what we're doing and what's driving it, and how much fear is driving our behavior. And fear, as, as you know, as we're seeing now, we're witnessing, is a very powerful emotion. And it is extremely contagious. And we have emotional contagion. And so our fear can quickly permeate through the ranks. So to, in order to be courageous, we have to be constantly looking inwards at ourselves and going, where is fear undermining my decisions right now? Where am I giving fear too much power? Fear is a natural emotion because it alerts us to potential threats. And we absolutely need to be mindful of the risks and the threats that are out there. I mean, otherwise, that's we're just reckless. But we also have to be mindful of our tendency for fear casting and looking into the future and painting everything through the lens of fear. And fear drives us to overestimate the risks, to catastrophize outcomes, to underestimate ourselves, to hunker down and stick with the status quo and to discount the cost of inaction. So there's a multiple different like cognitive biases that we have. And so we have to be constantly checking ourselves. and. I know myself in my, own, in my own work and career, I wouldn't have done any of the worthwhile things I've done unless I've been, I've been willing to lay my vulnerability on the line and take a risk. And sometimes things have worked out great and sometimes they have not worked out so good and they've been wonderful learning opportunities. But I've always grown from them. And the research, Dan Gilbert out of Harvard, you know, he said our psychological immune systems can far more easily justify an excess of courage than an excess of cowardice. So even when we take a risk and we try something and it doesn't work out the way we want, that, you know, we can go, I learned something from this. I grew from this. I, who I am now, is someone who is actually better positioned to be a leader than I was before. But when all we do is play it safe and avoid all the risks and hunker down and just look after our little patch of turf and our reputation right now and don't put ourselves down there, don't stick our neck out. We don't learn, we don't grow and we don't even get the potential benefits that we might have got by having dared the attempt. And so I think it's something we have to be mindful of every single day. And I wrote about this in my book, Brave, which is, is about 50 different ways that we can be brave in our work and leadership and life. And how important it is, courage is like a muscle. The more you practice it, the stronger you get. But when you stop practicing, it also withers. So I can work out every day and, you know, not that I'm ever going to get particularly buff, but I can, you know, build up my muscles. But if I stop going to the gym for a year, you know, they'll wither. So it's not something we can be complacent about when it comes to being courageous in ourselves and being brave as leaders. It's something we have to continually practice and work at. And frankly, in every aspect of our lives, I know we're talking at this through the leadership lens, but we're just talking about this through the human lens too, for us to be who we're capable of being, and to be the change agents we're capable of being, and the leaders we're capable of being, and the husbands and the wives and the parents and the friend and the community member we're capable of being, we have to be constantly asking ourselves, where do I need to choose the path of courage over comfort, of service over safety? And that journey, frankly,
0: Zoe, it never ends. (laughs) I'm wondering, though, also, is you know, we talk about comfort zones and expanding those. And I'm wondering if there's a courage zone as well. Like once you practice regularly and continually pushing the courage zone, whether or not you reach a certain threshold where you're comfortable with different kinds of courage or do you expand and contract continually?
1: Yeah. And I actually, I, courage zone is a, is a concept I use a lot in my work um, running leadership programs because Our courage zone is where we don't know 100% that what we're trying is going to land the result we want. But we know that we have to be in there anyway because otherwise we're going to be shrinking and not actually forging new ground. And so I think we have to be brave and courageous in different ways throughout our lives. And what it looks like, you know, when you're starting out, it might be all about um, your ability to... Get up and speak in front of people or you're you know you as a you as a, a manager and as we go through our leadership journeys what courage looks like and means for us can be different things how we're called to be courageous as leaders. And so, and sometimes that's, you know, maybe, you know, being vulnerable. Sometimes that is, and other times it may be taking a bold risk on something. And what it is I think can vary. So I think it's really about looking at where we are now and looking at our specific situation and where we are and going, what is it that I need to do right now that may be uncomfortable, but that I'm feeling called to do in order for me to be of greater service to those in my charge?
0: So I think once we've done it once, it gets a little bit easier, I'm thinking. So this is book number seven slash five for you. <laughs> the first book that came out, were you terrified or what was your relationship to that first book oh, being published?
1: Yeah, you you bet I was. Actually, there's a funny, a funny story about it. my first book I wrote, I, I lived in the US for 11 years and... I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I I really felt called to write this book. And people said, oh, you should write a book. And a little voice in my head, Zoe, was saying, who do you think you are to write a book? You know, who, who do you think you are? And I remember saying to my husband, you know, um gee, you know, it's not like I have a PhD in the, or anything. I'm not like overly credentialed academically. And, you know, I'm only, I think at the time I was 37 or 38 and I had four young children and I, I, you know, and I know I don't have all the answers to all the problems in the world. And he said, honey, one day when you're old and you have a PhD or or not, and you have all the answers to all of the problems in the world, why don't you write another book then? But for now, why don't you just write the best book that you can write right now? Just share what wisdom you have right now at this point in your life, because clearly people value it. And then one day when you have all the answers, um, you can write another book. And, And... in doing that, it gave me permission to write the best book I can, even though it wasn't going to be a perfect book. Right. And, and even though I wasn't, I've never had never studied writing. I didn't see myself as, you know, I'm no JK Rowling. I'm not, I'd never seen myself as someone who was some literary wordsmith. And so I wrote, find your courage. And I ultimately had it picked up by a big publishing house, McGraw Hill, who then re-released it. And it was, I remember in the lead up to it coming out around the world in, January of 2009. And I woke up one night, middle of the night, and in my mind's eye, it was the New York Times. And it was my face on the front cover of the New York Times, like taking up the whole of the New York Times, because that's, of course, what they would do for a first time author. (laughs) And the the headline just said, world's worst author. Oh, my God. That was in my, obviously, my, (laughs) that was like my my nightmare, right? (laughs) And that speaks to how much when we are putting ourselves out there in the world, and it was me putting a piece of myself out there in the world with this book this absolute terror of being exposed as completely inadequate for the task that I'd taken on. And being exposed as a total fraud, being exposed as um, someone who really had no value to add and feeling like a complete and utter fool. And the reality is that, I mean, even if I was the world's worst author, which frankly would take, you know, it was you know mean feat to do that. <laughs> the New York Times was never gonna stick me on the front page, you know, that would be brilliant publicity. But I think it speaks to how much our fear of being exposed as inadequate can keep us at times from even daring to do the things that we might feel called to do. And you know, find your courage is in seven languages now. And you know, if I picked it up now, I, I would say I'm a much better writer now than I was when I wrote that book. But how would I got to have been the writer I am now had I not actually written the first book and then the second, the third, and the fourth? So. We've got to give
0: ourselves permission to be inadequate for what we feel called to do. Oh, that's wonderful. And clearly you've you've adopted your husband's recommendations to write about <laughs> what you know now and keep writing. So, is anything different with this book? Like you've had a few books out, out on the road now, and your your practice and your contribution in the world is very different now than it was starting out. What's the same and what's different in terms of that fear of? being small and being found an imposter. Is there a different kind of fears that exist or is you just, are you done with that now?
1: Oh, absolutely. I still have the fears don't go away. Um, And you know, this book strategically Zoe, as someone who does a lot of speaking and I earn a lot of my income from getting up in front of audiences and, and speaking on, on brave leadership. Strategically, I remember thinking to myself, well, strategically, if I was going to look at what would be the best way to position myself it would have been writing a book called, say, Brave Leadership um, or Courageous Leadership or The Courage to Lead or something like that. But I felt really called cool to write a book that transcended the, the notions of leadership in the organisational realm that was really a book about trusting ourselves more deeply, that people in all realms would would be able to access and get value from. And I share my own spiritual belief system in this book too, as you would have read in reading it about choosing the path of faith over fear. And part of me feel a bit nervous about doing that. Like, oh, gee, am I kind of crossing the bounds now? Who am I to be doing that? Is this going to undermine my my brand? And I've just had to trust the calling in me, just to trust that and risk it. And so this book's actually me probably sharing who I am in the more intimate way of this is what is true for me versus me sort of positioning myself (laughs) and I just feel like when I die one day I will have been really truthful in this book and even if not everyone likes it or not everyone says well you know why are you sharing about your journal entries and God writing to you you know which I get some people go I don't know what's that about but that's my belief system and that's how I draw courage and that's how I have found resilience in difficult times and so just sharing my own spiritual beliefs um, that there is a greater force at play in our lives and that every experience and even the hardest adversities hold something for us to grow and learn and actually to be leaders in the world in ways we may not have been otherwise. I just felt really called to include that in this book. And so, yeah, this book is very much me in a sense, stepping out of my own comfort zone and sharing myself more fully and Connecting from a heart place in in a braver, more vulnerable way than I have dared to in previous books.
0: Wow, that's um that's really cool. And the hard part about speaking up and speaking your truth is the fear of being cast out. You know, that sense of belonging is something that we're hardwired for and it's fairly primal. And so when you speak against or speak differently to the norm or to what your club is or your group is then you can feel very raw around that. I'm wondering where else are you pushing the courage envelope in your own life? Oh,
1: well, <laughs> I feel like I'm pushing the courage envelope, courage, the courage. I mean, I'm copying your accent here. <laughs> the, courage, the courage envelope, the courage, the courage envelope in my own life, um, you know, as a parent, Actually, I do. I have, uh, as I shared with you, I have three children living in a different continent to me, which is not how I would have planned it, but it's how it's unfolded because of unexpected disruptive moves. And for me, trusting my children to pursue their own calling in the world, when that leaves me feeling kind of vulnerable for them. My oldest son is passionate around social justice and he feels really called to work. I know in, in parts of the world where People don't want to work and they're underprivileged and, um, and to forego what would be a more secure path, certainly financially. And for me as a parent, having grown up without money, I've worked hard to have security in my life and he's choosing to go a very insecure path. And I have to trust him on that path to walk his path and to figure his way forward and so actually all my children have very different paths they're just very different people they're wonderful and different and passionate and brilliant in their own way and so that's a place where I have to find courage to just have to walk the path of faith over fear as a parent in my work generally continually challenging myself to be playing a bigger game where am I playing small where am I sticking with what's safe where do I feel I need to to try new things, even as in my work, doing speaking and doing coaching and running. When I started running my Live Brave Women's Weekends, just even doing those was like, what if no one shows their public weekend programs? And I I was terrified. Well, what if no one comes? I'm gonna feel like a fool. It would be easier not to put on a public program. It's easier to do corporate work. I mean, it feels safer and much more secure. It's not me that's having to fill something like that. But I've just felt really called to do that because I see an immense need for, for women who, who aren't living the boldest, bravest, highest vision for their lives. So, so, yeah, there's lots of different places I feel like I'm pushing the courage envelope and challenging myself all of the time. Well, I
0: can't imagine you'd write the books that you write and just say, nah, I'm d- I'm done. <laughs> I reached everything I wanted to do and I'm I'm quite happy, thanks. So it's um that's really cool to get that insight in terms of what it is that you're doing. And I think with the parent thing, I don't have kids and I am so much heartful for the parents who do have to let their babies go off and be who they need to be in the world. And it's just gut-wrenching because you can see them making Choices that you would never make for yourself, potentially. Uh, and you just want to say, Stop, I know better, I've been there, done that, you know, follow this. And it, that doesn't serve them, and they'll never listen anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: To be authentic as a parent does take a ton of courage, that's for sure. So I'm curious about also in the process of book writing, like I'm writing my fourth book, and I find that as I write, I learn. I'm wondering what you learned or discovered in the writing of You've Got This. Great question. What did I learn? I learned that my thoughts are continually
1: evolving. And by the time I get to the end of the book, I know how I would have liked to have started the book. Yeah, <laughs> like, <okay. laughs> at the end of it, I'm like, oh, I wished I'd written this whole book before I'd started the whole book. Like, I mean, I know that sounds so circular and illogical, but it's in the process of getting to the final end point that you can see it all through a bigger, broader lens to go, oh, when I started out, I you know, and actually when I started this book, to be honest, I started writing this book as a book for women. And because in my work around the world, I meet women so often who doubt themselves too much and back themselves too little. But then life happened as it does. And I recognize the deep, deep need that many, 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 many men have to actually trust themselves more deeply. And to believe in their ability to prevail even when they feel incredibly threatened and insecure about the situations that they're dealing with. And it just, it's the way we experience it and the way we express sometimes fear in our lives can be very different, but we all experience it and none of us are immune to self-doubt and we can all react against it in ways that don't serve us and do not serve others in our capacity as leaders or otherwise. And so Actually, through the course of this book, I think I recognised how much more alike we all are than we are different. I mean, often we talk about men and women, all that stuff, but actually we're all humans and we all struggle. We all struggle with deep-seated sense, sometimes fears of being inadequate for the task and being exposed as not having what it takes. And so I think if anything, it just connected me more to the heart of people, who people are and beyond their title and the persona that they put on and the clothes they wear and the, you know, the position that they have, that actually we're all so much more connected at that deeper level to the things that we struggle with than we are
0: different. That's wonderful. And you're obviously a people stuff person. (laughs) You're obviously passionate about people and they're, what do you call it? Emboldening. I love that word, emboldening others. In the work that you do with people, what are you most curious about? I'm curious about how
1: to have people get really present to the price they're paying by sticking with the story they're telling themselves. And so a lot of people live in a story about who they are and who they have to be. Yeah, who do I have to be in order to be someone? And so often that drives us to put on masks and to erect, you know, this image of ourselves in the world that actually disconnects us from who we really are. And so often if we wear a mask long enough, we actually become a stranger to ourselves. And so for me and my work as a coach, as a speaker, as an author, as someone who really wants to have people show up in the world in the most authentic and powerful way, how do we help people? get to a place where they're willing to really get real with themselves and to be truly or truthful with themselves so that they can, they can actually show up in the world and connect with others in a way that is really meaningful and really authentic. And obviously we live in a culture that celebrates celebrity, that celebrates superficiality, and so much of the airwaves are just filled with what's superficial. And that's why I think we have these epidemics of loneliness, people so disconnected, you know, where we have, I mean, suicide and because people have lost touch with the truth of their lives and their ability to connect with others, because I think they're just so afraid of what that's going to mean to their own identity. So, yeah, that's something that I I sit with all the time on how I can really
0: get beneath the stuff that the veils that separate us from who we really are. Mm, I love that getting people to look at their stories can is incredibly confronting. And I was talking about that with, with one of my groups, my amplifiers group, about doing shadow work, which is part of what you're talking about, is looking at those dark corners uh-huh. that we try and suppress. Absolutely. And uh, we judge others for these attributes which are really buried in ourselves. Uh, Because it's not nice sometimes to look at the stories that we're telling ourselves about us or to look at the parts of us that we feel shame about, we feel regret, we feel guilt about. And I think your question about how do we help people to do that is a really important one, because if we don't do that, we remain disconnected from ourselves, from others and from our purpose and the contribution that we could make in the world. I'm just wondering what the question, what the answer to that question is. Like, how do we help people do that? Your work is a large part about that, you know, being yeah. brave and, and so on. How else do you think people might reach for that?
1: Well, I always think it's it's good. The elevator doesn't have to go down to the bottom floor before we choose to get off. And I think just trying to get people present to like, what's the emotional landscape of your life? You know, how often do you feel deep joy, deep connection, deep gratitude? and what is in the way of you feeling that more often? And, you know, there's a lot of people I think are completely held hostage to fear. Now, they can be highly successful people. I mean, they can look brilliant and earn a lot of money and be on the front pages, but actually they're not, they don't actually experience a lot of joy in their life because they're still, it's all about looking good and it's all about how others will perceive them. And when our actions are really dictated about, how will other people perceive us? And am I impressing people? Do people like me? You know, and how many people like me specifically, you know, how many people like that post I just put up or are following my fan club or whatever it is, or buying my music or, you know, you name it. And, when that is dominating our thinking space, it actually we are held hostage to that. And so I don't think any of us ever arrived, Zoe, may I just say this, you know, and I've met some incredibly grounded, wonderful people, extraordinary people. It's such a privilege when you meet those people, you feel it in your bones. You know, you're with someone who has really done the deep work on themselves. But those people will be the first to say, that they haven't arrived. They have to continually do it. So I don't think any of us really arrive. And to those of those who are listening to our conversation right now, I think that's where self compassion is so important. And I have a whole chapter, and you've got this on self compassion, which is titled "Get off your Get off your own back." Um, because be kinder to yourself. Embrace your humanity. Embrace your fallibility. Because. I think we're all on this journey together. We're all walking our own hero's journey. We're all falling down. We're all tripping up and none of us ever live in 100% alignment with our deepest values and the highest aspirations for who we want to be. I am not always loving and kind and patient. Sometimes I can be judgmental. Sometimes I'll say things that, you know, I know a bit mean or, you know, aren't who I want to be in the world. I'm not always brave. Sometimes I care way too much about what other people think. And so those moments where we do that, you know, just being kind to ourselves, I'm human and I'm falling down. And I think the more we can show compassion to ourselves as human beings on this, all, you know, as Mandela said, we're all just walking each other home. We're all on our, on our journey, I think it it allows us to connect with other people from a place of greater compassion. And when we see someone who triggers us and, you know, like for instance, I get triggered by stuck up people who think they're really good. I mean, maybe it's my country farm girl roots of kind of growing up with those, you know, those rich city people that I, you know, I ended up kind of being one of the people, I mean, I say rich city people, but sent their children to private schools. I mean, that's what I ended up doing, you know, and I'd grown up with very little and I was just jealous of them really. But, um, But when I meet people who can be pretentious, I can get triggered by pretentious people. I'm like, oh, you know, those pretentious people. And the shadow work that you talk about, well, where is pretentiousness in me? And I'm like, come on, Maggie, be honest. You can be judgmental at times. You can be pretentious. (laughs) And like, where do I need to look at myself? And where is that person struggling and suffering and deeply insecure, which is why they need to walk around letting people know how incredibly important and significant they are. You know, and okay, where do I need to do that sometimes too? And I think it allows us to connect with people from a place of greater compassion. And so when I meet people who trigger me, I'm like, ah, oh, here's a wonderful lesson for me today to have a good look at myself and go, where is that that I see in them living in me? And where do I need to do a little bit of work on that?
0: Beautifully expressed. And I love the fact that you come full circle to self-compassion. I think that's a fabulous message for all of us. So, Margie, this has been fantastic. Your energy is remarkable. Your passion for the work that you're doing and emboldening others, I just love it so much and I appreciate it so much. So thank you so much. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Zoe. Thank you. Margie was so easy to listen to. Her energy is just so infectious. I just loved hearing her story and her passion for people. I think the key takeaways for me on this one were self-compassion. That's a really big one. It's big one for my work with my clients as well is being kind to yourself is really, really important because the journey of self-transformation is quite difficult and quite confronting. I think the other key takeaway is to ask that question, where am I playing it safe in my life? Where do I need to push the courage boundary into courage zone and to stretch that a little bit because it's so easy to fall into complacency. So those are my key ones. I would love to hear what yours are. Feel free to leave a comment or ask a question on the Facebook page. Love to hear your insights around this. And also, if you have any recommendations for other leaders you would love to hear from, they could be business leaders, they could be speakers or experts, I would love to hear your recommendations and ideas about who you'd love to hear from on the call. Well, in the meantime, live well, lead well.